Hey everyone, welcome back to the Contextual Insurgent Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, and I'm joined once again by my loyal compatriot, Tech Baratito. Nostruvia. Today we're going to talk about the Supreme Court cases that came down over the last week. They just wrapped up their term yesterday um, with the EPA case, West Virginia versus EPA, and the one um, Biden versus Texas, which is the one about the remain in Mexico policy. Um, but they also had, again, they had the gun case, the Bruin case, that was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, um, the Dobbs case about abortion, they were from Roe v. Wade, and the Kennedy case, which involves prayer. Those were like the five big cases everyone was waiting on, and we got all those in the last week or so. Again, you know, I'm not a lawyer, Tech Bertito is not a lawyer, so we're not really going to really dive in the, the legal aspect of these rulings. What's really more interesting for me is you know kind of what it says about the direction of the country and the direction of the court and more importantly like how the right thinks about power and progress and its its theory of victory uh we're also going to talk a little bit about the january 6th stuff we're going to you know talking more about power and legitimacy is i think what we want to hit on here today um you know the interesting thing is just give a little rundown on this stuff you know again we had the the dobbs case which was the abortion case that was the one that was leaked in May, um, <clears throat> where they actually went ahead and they overturned Roe v. Wade and sent it back to the states to determine. Um, each state got the chance to once again determine how it wants to deal with abortion. Now, the gun case, which was the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which struck down the had to do with the, with the May issue regime in about seven different states of the, of the country where they don't have to give you know there's there's a framework to get a concealed carry permit but there's absolutely no obligation for the local authorities to give it to you versus the shall issue which is basically moves the burden of proof to the you know state where they have a very narrow set of exceptions otherwise you get a permit to carry or they even have constitutional carry um, there's also the one <clears throat> the west virginia versus the epa case which was the one that really kind of i think was very interesting because it really threatened to really undermine the chevron deference which you know this that's the thing that basically allows the administrative state to create the rules and fill in the gap so to speak when the the federal government the actual legislature does not actually create um something explicit that's the one that kind of gives them the, the supreme court basically invented that that gives the um regulatory agencies kind of the license to come up with things like the AC, ATF rulemaking. Again, if you're a gun person, if you listen to this a lot, you probably are. The ATF rulemaking where they get to things like bump stocks are gone now and uh, the binary trigger stuff and all these other things where they get to, you know, the pistol braces that were kosher for the longest time and now all of a sudden they're like being very wary about that. Um, that was sort of the thing that that didn't directly deal with it but it was it the, the case did actually depend on um did hinge on how much leeway a regulatory agency gets to kind of you know develop these regulations in the absence of some sort of explicit framework from the federal government um <clears throat> the prayer case you know that's kind of really relatively i guess well i can't really say it's minor but it was one of the things of can you actually be you know if you're a religious person can you pray if you're a public employee you know on the clock which was this guy who wanted to pray in the middle of a field after the game was over um basically for the five basically all the ones except for the remain in mexico came down for the right something that you know um, with logic and rulings that definitely worked for our favor the remain in mexico um is it, not a big a deal as it sounds because it dealt more with the asylum but when people show up at the border and they request asylum um it was really a question of can the can the administration do they have to require them to stay in mexico because that's the one that the trump administration created of they have to stay in mexico while their asylum is being processed or are they can they be allowed into the united states Supreme court actually said yes you you know if you want to if the regulatory, if the administration wants to allow them into the country, they have the authority to do that. You know, again, that 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 does suck. But at the same time, it's like apparently only like a thousand people a month or something. 
the Title 42, which is the one that actually requires them to stay in Mexico. Like, that's the one that stops, like, 100,000 people a month. That's the one where it's, it's um, and if they're infectious or, or some way, that's the one that they started enforcing during COVID where they were refusing to allow, allow people into the country. They tried, the um, Biden administration tried to revoke it earlier this year, and, yeah, apparently the federal the there's some federal judges that are blocking it for once they're actually coming you know helping us out where they're they're saying hey you know you have to keep doing this so that's going on with that one um that's the more important one. that's the one that's stopping like 90 or 100,000 people a month the one that, the asylum one the remain in mexico policy only really applied to a couple thousand um you know the gun the gun one is interesting because that's the new york state pistol and rock association versus bruin um, and this is one of the things that really kind of stands out to me when you deal with a lot of right-wing people, um, or when you talk to them. And you know, I remember when Heller first came down, the original one in two thousand and eight. There was people who were expecting the Supreme Court to issue this ruling that was like, everyone gets machine guns. You know, all gun laws are overruled. I'm like, no, it it doesn't. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, I followed along enough with the Supreme Court over the years to know, like, that's not what happens. That's not how they operate. They don't, they have these narrow questions they they accept, and, you know, they decide that they're going, <laughs> Ellie, sorry, my dog tried to chew on some deodorant. She's adorable. She was, she was sitting outside for a bit, and um, she curled up by the door and wanted to come hang out, so she's laying here on the couch. Uh, being a little stinker, like like dogs are. But anyway, um, the uh, gun case, yeah. So you had the Heller one that was like, yeah, you can you can actually have you have a right to an individual right to firearms. And then there was the McDonald case, which was the now what was the McDonald's case about again? Heller was about D.C. versus Heller, which only mm -hmm. applied to federal District of Columbia. McDonald was about incorporating versus states. When you have something in apply in the D District of Columbia, technically it does not apply to states because it's just not a state. It's a weird ruling, and so essentially McDonald, McDonald didn't really add anything new aside from extending it to states versus uh, versus federally administered districts. Yeah, that's um, I know they call that one Heller too, but it was interesting because um, there's that progression there. You know, like you said, from from the federal government to being applying it against the states, because you know, again, when the country was founded, the the Bill of Rights really was only applied against the federal government. You know, the states. It, that's why incorporation came along um, with the Fourteenth Amendment. But yeah, anyway, so it's been a progression, and now we have this one, which is very interesting because, again, you know, they basically said that shall issue is on uh, may issue is unconstitutional like it has to be shall issue for all 50 states of course new york is in the process of trying to create uh a bunch of new regulations that along with california along with california as well on uh, several of the other states some of the other gun banner states um, but it's interesting because again it was a narrow ruling but the thing is the logic behind it was so the logic behind the ruling was so expansive that it it followed to his logical conclusions it takes down a lot of gun laws because um, you know they he, I remember in the lead up we were thinking I hope we get strict construction out of this um, but this blew right past that it's the the text and history and tradition of the second amendment so funny thing when I, I have actually read Bruin in full uh, mm -hmm. I've only got about halfway through all the way through Dobbs I haven't caught up to the rest of them but the funny thing was when I read Bruin I was really shocked by uh, and and pleased by standards applied, which was quite frankly something that I had considered most important. Uh, scrutiny is invented by court; it is court-invented doctrine, just like Chevron is co Chevron doctrine is court-invented. And so people get locked into frame where they say, "Oh, I want to have strongest policy created by court," and this is a failure of imagination to say this is a completely invented policy by courts. Screw this policy. I wish to have something not invented by courts. I wish to have something much bigger, much more grander. And so Thomas, frankly, uh, 
it's interesting. Scalia, when alive, he said that, that he was a faint-hearted originalist, and he said that Thomas was a true originalist, or a brave one, and that he called himself essentially a cuck. Uh, Scalia called himself essentially a cuck whilst he was alive, because he would not rule for uh, school spanking. It was a famous case that, uh, that Thomas wrote a dissent on, <clears throat> where he said that, yes, spanking should be allowed in schools, and cited a 1790 primer or something like that on, uh, on spanking children in schools. So the thing is, I had hopes of something this large, and I had hopes of throwing out construction. But most people get get so lost in, oh, well, this is, I guess, this thing that my friends, which are lawyers, said I have to look at, which is uh, scrutiny. I guess I need strict scrutiny. And it's like, no, if you actually take time to read, and wonderful thing about Supreme Court cases, first call it 10 pages or so, there's one part that's easy reading. I don't care. If you graduate high school, you can read it. You, first 10 pages is high school reading level, promise. Like, and then you will see them transition into to, to large legal citations. So go ahead, read parts yourself that are easy, and then skip over. Every case, especially, excuse me, especially important cases like this, are specifically written so that normal citizens can read this. And Thomas's was wonderful because, it, frankly, it lacks Scalia's pizzazz, it lacks his style, but it is brutally efficient. It is amazingly simple. And it, it, it cuts through all the, the beautiful operatic language that Scalia and our, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg enjoyed together. It says no. Constitution means what it says. Don't add anything more. If it's not at the time of founding, who cares? It's literally that simple. Yeah, it's really, yeah. And that was one of the things I remember people were saying. Um, they were, it, it is pretty <laughs> brutally um, effective about saying what he needs to say. And like, like, like he just... He blew right. He blew strict scrutiny out of the water. He's like, no, that's this is we're going beyond that. Um, again, you know, we're we're not lawyers. Not gonna really break down too much of that. I mean, but you did actually it was interesting because, you know, we're talking about some of the expectations people have, and and this is kind of where where we get to it with this, and with you know to some extent, like I I have to say Dobbs did really really kind of surprise me, and when it was leaked, when that when that ruling was when the opinion was leaked was the first time I really started to suspect that, like, maybe this is a different court now that we've got Barrett on there. Maybe they actually are going to be much more aggressive. Because that was, you know, again, they, they ended up throwing Roe out, and I didn't expect that. I thought they were going to get another narrow ruling. I thought, like, basically, um, Roberts ended up, it was 6-3, but it was 5-4 to over overrule Roe. Um, Roberts would have actually allowed the 15-week thing Mississippi did to stand, but he would, but he would, he would have kept, he would have allowed that to stay. But he would have saved Roe, is what he, what apparently what he said. Um, that's kind of what I expected this court to do. And when that leaked out, I was like, holy shit, they went all the way. Roe is gone. What are they going to do with the gun cases? What are they going to do with the EPA cases? So, and this was something else. Other people started looking at because they're like, holy shit, what is this court going to do now? Because um, they are definitely have a lot more aggressive than they were before. Um. Yeah, so you know the interesting thing about that again, like like you're saying, people had expectations, and but at the same time, like, I really did not expect them to go. You know, I did see someone say, "Yeah, people are going to be car open carrying Glocks in New York Central Park tomorrow after the case is released." And I was like, "I don't think that's going to happen." Um, well, inter interesting, interesting predi prediction of this. Mm -hmm. um, probably most people wouldn't try, and probably NYPD is so, is so politicized for us with, with the COVID regulations, with uh, with money that was spent to put Black Lives Matter on street, and, and NYPD cops used to protect it and arrest people. Yes, they would likely have that. However, interesting uh, comparison. DC is actually currently shall issue, with some caveats there, it is actually shall issue jurisdiction. And so what happened is, when actually this was struck down, uh, uh, the way it was struck down, there was immediate injunction. People were, in fact, open and concealed carrying in D.C. next day. They quickly put injunction in place. But it's not actually that crazy uh, a prediction. Again, in New York's case, certainly. But D.C. went from no issue to, in fact, people actually doing this, and then they actually had to issue an updated ruling. Now, this one didn't have that, and again, there's a term, uh, fuck around, find out, and that very much applies in New York. But very frankly, this did happen with DC. So there is, in fact, recent uh, recent comparison where this could have happened. Yeah, I think um, the thing that stood out with that, though, is, um, and this goes back to the theory of power thing that we've touched on before in, in different circumstances and contexts. And I think we see a lot of this um, 
like yeah, they, these were amazing. Like these overall, these cases were huge victories because even though the the logic used in in Bruin the guns case was was you know the ruling itself was fairly narrow in application, or specifically the question for which they rendered an opinion was fairly narrow, but the logic and um, standards that he imposed are wildly far-ranging. They actually sent, they were holding a bunch of cases for certification, um, you know, for, um, not for certification, cert, cert however they always say. I always mangle it. I always say cert, because I, I can't, I, I am terrible at mangling names like that, the Latin stuff. But yeah, they were holding a bunch of cases for that. Um, they um, vacated and remanded those cases and told them, you know, rule on these cases, the lower courts, they said rule on these cases, um, in accordance with um, the Bruin case, the um, the Bruins case that we just issued the opinion. But I think the interesting thing is, um, so there's going to be there's a, a lot of massive change in the in the gun community and the gun rights issue and topic that's going to be coming down the pipe in the next year or two um, if they do not fuck around if they don't fuck around with it too much. Thankfully, I think the California case has a fairly sympathetic judge that's handling things so that one may get resolved fairly quickly but again this is one of the things that um i really was kind of trying to build to which is you know we talk about and this is something we've hit on a lot the right looks for this decisive battle they, they want this one big climatic battle and that's how you solve everything um and and this is sort of what people keep trying to find this like they try to they try to expect this with with heller they tried to expect it with McDonald. They wanted to expect this with the, with the Bruin case, um, and again, you know, this is something where it doesn't work that way. Because you know, the the a good analog for this is that's what happened with the Roe case. Is like it was like they took it to court, and and abortion there was it was totally fine to regulate abortion across the country, and then you know the court found this right in the you know penumbras and emanations of the constitution and imposed it for 50 years and no one was satisfied because they did basically completely pulled it out of their ass um and there it is it's gone now so this is the thing that you know it's about uh building a victory step by step versus this big decisive battle because you know and there's a historical analog for this um, you know, the Japanese that was like in the Born in Pacific, they had the idea of, you know, the Kantai Kesson, the decisive battle, where they're, we're going to, okay, we're going to sit back at the islands and send our submarines out. And then when the enemy fleet's approaching the home islands, we're just going to keep chipping them off. We're going to have the big night battles where we torpedo their ships. And then when they finally get to the home island, they're going to be depleted down and shot up. And then we're going to bring out the big battle fleet and wipe out the enemy fleet. And that's really how the Japanese foresaw a world war happening. And this was actually something based on something that happened to them. You know, the Battle of Tsushima, which in 1905, the Russo-Japanese War, the Russians sailed a gigantic fleet all the way around, you know, from, from Vladivostok all the way around the world, like 14,000 miles in like nine months, and to Port Arthur, Japan. And they were going right like a couple days sailing from making the... the making home port they got ambushed by the japanese and wiped out because again they sailed all the way around the world and their sailors were exhausted their ships were beat all up they were were these were cold fired ships in 1905 the maintenance was terrible they just were completely outmatched so the japanese kind of built on that it was like hey this works for us we're just gonna like you know try to push everything and just kind of wear people down a little bit at the edges and set everything up for this big climactic battle, and then we're going to win this battle, and then we're going to go home, and the war's over. You know, then you have compared the way the Allies fought in World War II, which is, you know, we're going to be like a boer constrictor. We're going to have, you know, this this relentless, these victories, we're going to keep making these victories, these small victories that keep adding up and adding up and building up victories and bases for ourselves across the Pacific, we're just going to, you know, they called it island hopping where they were like, well, the Japanese have these forces and we're going to actually bypass around them and then like turn these big forces they have into a liability because now they're cut off and we're not gonna even going to bother taking them. We're just going to cut them off and, you know, they can't be resupplied. Now, all of a sudden, they're a liability 
And yeah, go ahead. Perfect example. Look at look at again. I'm not taking side on this. Obviously, mm-hmm. being from Yugoslavia, I have thoughts. Look at the current conflict in Ukraine and how and Russia's strategy of bypassing particular towns, hitting parts, and uh, trying to cut things off. The cauldron effect. All this. This is what is being done. This is what effective warfare looks like. You know, it's. A, I, I'm sorry to cut off, but you know, frankly, the tradition that the right wingers want to look for, and and frankly, to some degree, the left has actually accomplished, done, and so it's it's not just a righty lefty thing. It really is a human condition thing. Both sides are looking for essentially final climactic battle, but not even so much that they're looking for heroes to fight. They're looking for essentially Hector versus Achilles of of Iliad. They look for uh, these these two you know major champions to fight it out and uh, for 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 the victory to come. In fact, this is a foundational idea. You you don't think of Israelis, you don't think of uh, of Jewish people, you don't think of Bible as this. But this is you know this is David versus Goliath. Now of course the the, the idea is he manages to with one simple trick manages to take out superior force, but again. Again, it was heroes. This is a foundational way people look to things because it is more heroic to see single individuals versus a large battle in this kind of, uh, you know, wearing away and this kind of siege mentality. Yeah, I think um, that's that's a big part of it. It's like the the it's interesting because again, you know, I'm kind of using this as an analogy because you see this in in the in these recent rulings. Um, it, the logic is there. Um, but again, like I'm, I'm kind of using the analogy in the Pacific War because it's very interesting because the Japanese wanted this big climactic battle and the Allies refused to give it to them until they actually had prepared the battlefield the way they wanted. They're like, we're going to wear these people down. We're going to keep kind of, we're like, you know, Midway was like one of those things where the risk was worth the reward. Um, there was other handfuls of battles in the early parts of the war, but Nimitz was very, very clear. Like, I don't have a whole lot of supplies and ships, so we're going to be very careful how we apply these things. We're going to only attack when we have a huge advantage so it was not like them just running straight in and winning this one big battle because again it was Nimitz knew that like this was going to be going on for a long several years and it was going to be a while before he actually had the supplies and the men he needed to actually have this big campaign across the Pacific and that's but that's really again a, a mindset difference of like you know the Japanese had an idea of how they wanted to win and unfortunately for them, the Allies refused to fight that way. They weren't going to fight the way the Japanese had planned. You know, they weren't going to give them another victory like they had in the Russo-Japanese War. They weren't going to just walk right into their trap and get slaughtered. Um, and again, that's one of the things that's kind of annoying about so many people's normies on the right is they want this big victory. And you saw this when Trump got elected. Like, hey, Trump's president now. We won. It's over. And they're like, no, 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 it's not over. This is just... This is a civilizational struggle that's been going on for, fuck, I don't know how long you want to say, maybe since the birth of Christ or something. But however long you want to put it, it's something older than us and it will be going on longer, long after we're gone. So the whole thing is, and this is what I see that's really, you know, the, 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 this is again the Federalist Society, is that legal society that was founded in like 1982 that was all about this, about trying to be um, conservative um, jurisprudence and trying to bring that into the world and, and bring the right, um, the legal victories it wanted. And and Roe was really kind of the, you know, the, the big target to go after. But it's interesting too, because, you know, this is, this is one of the things of, they, they've built this legal case for guns and abortion and the EPA situation that, you know, which deals with Chevron. Um, again, it's, it's, those are, all big victories they're not they're not the total climactic battles that people expect but they are building that foundation right well and again part of the part of the thing and you know you can emphasize on the right the thing is quite frankly pro-life victory has shown the success of, of this different movement and frankly uh, roe v wade truly was the left essentially doing what you consider a right-wing thing right the idea is a uh, few states were starting to, to liberalize abortion as far as things went but the roe v wade really pushed envelope it moved from griswold v connecticut which was about uh it was a very very careful case it was a it was a married couple wanted to obtain contraception which was not legal in connecticut 
Um, and, you know, and they, they found perfect plaintiff's perfect case. This was 56, if I recall correctly. And so uh, they, they, they then used that to force the idea that contraception was a right, uh, and they, they created the idea of a right to privacy, the first mention of uh, emanations and penumbras of Fourth Amendment. We can get into that. It's a very ridiculous thing. Most people have not read the reasoning. It's amazing. But anyways, they used this then to leapfrog from uh, essentially, I believe it was 56 to 73, they create, uh, they create Roe v. Wade. But the point is, they overreach. They overreached supply lines, and the issue was, of course, and this is what uh, this is what Alito says in criticism, and he quotes Ruth Bader Ginsburg and many other people that essentially they overreached and that they they pushed very hard and they didn't do ground force buildup uh, to to. Uh, or maintain supply lines, to maintain uh, jurisprudence, to maintain essentially standards that preceded this. So, you know, one of the problems is uh, people look for uh, what, what, you know, let's be clear, it's called a knockout punch, right? They're looking for one big knockout to knock the person out instead of a careful game of wearing the person down like boxing. Well, the problem with knockout punch is, you know, unless you're very careful and very good at it, it looks like haymaker. And if you ever have any combat, you know, hand-to-hand combat experience or, or bar fighting as it were, Haymakers leave you very vulnerable. If you miss with haymakers, it leaves you very vulnerable to to follow ups. Yeah, um, it's it's a really good point about overreaching supply lines because I feel like you know this pushback here in this in this last um, court term has been very careful about not doing that. It's it's because you know the logic and justifications for their opinions have been absolutely devastating, but they've been very careful to somewhat narrowly construe them but because again like there's a big stack of gun cases out there there's a huge stack of them and the logic that they used in the ruling will basically strike down a big chunk of america's state and federal gun laws if they had tried to just strike those down it would have been you know a lot more um disruptive but it would also been a weaker overreach because now again these cases go back down to be relitigated and they can, when they come back up, the court has another chance to rule. So it's basically, and again, this is the thing about the left. They're very easy to provoke into overreach. So these cases that have been sent back down, especially in the, on the gun topic, there's a big stack of cases now that can come back to the court. And they get to rule time and time and time again. And they'll get to build those, those bricks of that foundation, expanding the logic they used in this Dobbs case. Um which I think is is is, is pretty smart because instead of like one big massive ruling, now they get a chance to do like six or eight of them that are tr- stack one on top of the other. Right, <clears throat> and let's Excuse be me. let's be very clear about what both Dobbs, uh, the difference between Dobbs and Bruin. Dobbs kicks it back to states. Dobbs does not illegalize abortion. It says states can decide. It goes to the federalist laboratory of democracy model. Because it says that the, that creating you know and you know uh, again Alito's reasoning is it says Roe relies upon Griswold v. Connecticut to find a right to privacy. Uh, so literally reasoning, I swear to God, read it yourself. You your your eyes will cross. You will not believe it's there. It says in the Fourth Amendment upon their ruling in Griswold, they found in Fourth Amendment they found emanations from Fourth Amendment includes a right to privacy. And in the penumbra, and look at penumbra, if you're an astronomer, perhaps you know penumbra. Penumbra is the outer part, the weakest part of shadow that transitions into, uh, into uh, you know, hard light. In the penumbra, of the emanation of Fourth Amendment is a right to abortion. So it eliminates this and says this is ridiculous. And you know, in fact, they said, you know, in, in fact, Alito says this this was such bad reasoning when they actually revisited it in Casey in 1992. They couldn't hold to it, and so they said, um, yeah, we won't adhere to right to privacy off of Fourth Amendment. We'll find it variously in from Fourteenth, and in the Fourteenth, there's implications of. I forget what he quoted. He said like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth amendments, and you know uh, various places, never specifying where. And they were playing essentially a, a shell game of yeah, it might be in any of these places, but we promise you it's here. So very bad reasoning, very bad. Re- and anyways, not to go deep into the the, the legal uh, geekery. The point is that there was they never really specified what tradition, where it was, and why it was strongly there to protect abortion at federal level. Now Dobbs kicks it back to states. States may choose. Now the interesting thing is the Second Amendment, which again is Second Amendment. And people, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, it's a Second Amendment. It's not really part of the Constitution. It wasn't passed with the Constitution. They had to add it in the first 10 for the Bill of Rights. 
And it's like, well, okay, let's crack history books. Crack history books, you find on the floor of convention, of constitutional convention, they wanted to add a right to keep and bear arms. However, there was debate about it, how to write it in such a way so that whether or not people felt they could be drafted or not, or about uh, and about various disputes. But the point was, they very much wanted to add it. And the deal, the, 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 the sausage-making deal to pass constitution was, we will pass constitution without the right to keep and bear arms in it. If it is immediately added in te in package of ten because we, we understand you want to get it out. It was uh, they had to actually do it you know, not to get too deep into history. They needed to get constitution out. They needed to ship product, you know, minimum viable product. They needed to ship minimum viable product of constitution. And they said, look, we promise we'll get that out. This is a sausage making deal. We'll pass it right afterwards to include it when we can sort of hammer out uh, worded verbiage. And then again, you get to, if you're a second amendment legal scholar, you understand how many different versions were passed and changed and periods and and commas because of this this haggling so the point is it very much was in the mind of the original constitution it was not added it was not tacked on later it was meant to be in there it just happened to be from you know, from the logistics essentially from real concerns of getting the, the the convention done getting it written getting it shipped to not add it there so the point is though what's funny is uh roe v wade had essentially uh created the right that was at federal level to protect these things, even though it was, you know, they, they, they had to create reasons why substantive due process, etc., etc., they had to create reasons why that, that there's nothing about abortion or women or right to reproduce or right to terminate pregnancy in the Constitution. It's there. However, with Second Amendment, they had to say, well, this isn't protected at federal level, it's at state levels, and, you know, again, it's like, oh, really? You're telling me that the thing that is not, ex that is not explicitly written in the Constitution is more protected than thing that's not explicitly written? Like, you think I was born yesterday? You think I can't read? Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, it's it's really, um, I think one of the things, too, I really kind of get off of it is um, that, and as well as, especially with the the, the Dobbs ruling, um, again, I, I, I doubt this played any part in their decision-making, and it, it definitely wasn't mentioned in the ruling, but one of the things we talked about last week was how the uh, the pro-abortion rights groups were basically collapsing. There's been some, because apparently wokeness has, has turned into like a mind virus and it's just basically destroying these groups because they've turned into like internecine conflict for the, the professional managerial class. These people are, they get into the NGO um, uh, think tanks, uh, activist group spaces are now using it. Like they just kind of assumed that abortions were safe. So they got into the abortion rights groups and they started to sort of cannibalize them to suck down all the uh, the donations um, and use them for their own little projects because they stopped caring about abortion. So basically the entire the, – the pro-abortion ecosphere is basically non-functional right now. Well, But the, the pro-life side is not. They're incredibly motivated. They're incre they have been incredibly effective because now this, this – um, ruling they have fought for for 40 years you know they have they have that's been a big part of, of that is the incremental victories of like we're going to keep pushing we're going to keep pushing we're going to keep pushing and they finally got it and like now it's like there's a serious mismatch let me give inter let me give a slight pushback to a characterization of this one of the interesting things is that you know is that you know as we both agreed one of one of the issues with the right being effective is issues about right uh, they're very bad at organizing, effectuating change, having uh, various uh, various demands and what they want to ask for next. So they got the rhinos that they get away with saying, with making identity cultural markers. This is important to me, but not what am I going to do for it? Whereas, uh, yeah, whereas the left is better about you know demanding particulars and getting particulars and getting actual things. Um, I would say abortion, quite frankly, is where the, the left most resembled the right. And this is quite simply, after they got it past that level, they didn't really have much more to push for. They sort of won their victory, as it were. And so what happened with the groups, and there's multiple articles on what's happened to Naral Pro-Choice, um, Guttmacher Institute, I don't think so much Planned Parenthood, but there was various uh, various analyses of failure, failure mode coming out late last year, uh, building up to this being a problem, was what happened was, 
these organizations really had nothing more. It's 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 you know they're like Walt from uh, from Breaking Bad standing there after he's managed to. Uh, I won't ruin uh, Breaking Bad if you haven't seen it. It's excellent, but there's a particular scene when he's really developed himself into a capable character who can take on truly uh, powerful entities. He stands there. He calls someone, and he that he that he, he calls wife who was scared of the of situation they were in. He told him to go into hiding. He calls and he says, "I've won." But he says it with a sense of shock, a sense of uh, devastation, elation. It's it's a mixed feeling. He's not sure what. And so Roe v. Wade was much like that. And what happens is that these these state level institutes, these state level things, they had nothing more to push for. So all it became is it became cultural marker. We're pro choice. We'll we'll try to maybe push back regular. You know, it's again trying. What, what are you going to do? Try to push back some some sli- some small state level regulations. You need very big things like that. So ultimately, what it became is it became cultural marker. Just like people say, I'm pro Second Amendment and not. I'm going to repeal NFA. No real uh, no real um, you know lines and to determine stuff off of. Oh, I support the police. Oh, you support police enforcing COVID measures. Like, no no real pushback. It became a cultural marker, and further, there was one thing you could really say they tried to push for, and this was for federal funding for abortions, Hyde Amendment, etc., etc. Not to go too deep into it. Point is, there really is only one place more to go, and that's actually taking money from taxpayers, from anti-choice, from, pro- from pro-life taxpayers, to fund abortions. And so this became basically the the one issue that they could tilt, that they could basically milk off of. And so what happens to organizations is, since there wasn't anything else to do but essentially grift, and to try to basically push forward this this very uh, very difficult thing that would basically make the right ready to ready to say we're done with elect government, we're ready to take up arms. It basically became this grift for probably, you know, 20 plus years essentially, where all you're doing is trying to push for something you have very small chance of getting. And so it just became basically milking a fundraising thing. Again, much like right-wing failure. Yeah, it's you know reminds me of that uh, thing from uh, Batman when Bane Bane says pieces cost you your strength, victories defeated you, and I think that was really a big part for for that because again they're like well we won and like now especially um, there wasn't there wasn't a, a constant battle at that sense that because they'd won their big victory, um, again you know and this is interesting because they didn't do it culturally they didn't try to do it grassroots so much they did it. It was legal maneuvering because they had this period where the courts were predominantly liberal and leftist, um, and that's how they sort of enforced their you know cultural victories. That's the thing is like it's very interesting because if you examine almost and we talked about this before, you know, like I, I when I was talking about um, the Montgomery bus boycotts, one of the things I pointed out in that episode was they actually won in the courts. The boycott itself was didn't wasn't the thing that really created the change it was that it was actually winning the lawsuit that actually made the big difference um not to undermine that the, the hard work that went into it but the reality is it's like that's the thing that they've kind of glossed over um so much of the groundwork which again is is extremely helpful and useful for a lot of ways but in lots of different ways but it's also sort of a smokescreen for a lot of the legal maneuvering that happens in the background um so much of this, so much of the things that they have, leftist cultural victories have been done, won through the courts. And like now they're like, holy shit, we've lost control of the courts. The right has the courts. And they don't know how to deal with this. And, you know, again, this is something we, we, we saw and we talked about last week with a lot of these, these pro-abortion groups. They're just utterly non-functional now because they're like, well, we, well we've won. And like now that's when I, the identity politics and the wokeness took off. So a lot of these people that moved into that place, the younger people are all about fighting each other uh, for an increasingly shrinking part of the pot. Um, but another thing to take from this is very interesting is um, the, legitimacy, the legitimacy talk that we hear from the left. It's very interesting because, you know, this is the thing that we see, like we, we, we see this when the left is fairly, when they're successful and when the right's been successful, it's been less about just purely um, the material conditions of policy, but more about a moral argument. Like you look at the, pro, the, the pro-life groups that ended up pushing this, the Federalist Society, all these people, they weren't making some cold-hearted, calculated policy about economic conditions. They were making a, a totalizing moral argument. Like, this is immoral, we're going to stop it. And that's really the end of the discussion. There wasn't anything about... Um, 
tax policy or, or you know, tax rates or anything like that, any type of free trade. It wasn't any, any of this boring, um, purely mechanistic type of stuff. It was all about the moral argument. And that's what you see um, when, the, when the left is successful and when the right is successful, is when people kind of take, make that argument. But it's interesting, though, because, you know, we were talking about this earlier, and I had to revisit this piece because I read this a couple years ago. And it's pretty hilarious. It's the piece from uh, Mark Tushnet. He wrote it in um, May of 2016. It was called Abandoning Defensive Crouch Liberal Constitutional or Constitutionalism. Um, but it was an interesting piece because this guy was writing it when they assumed Trump had won, won the nomination. And they basically assumed that Hillary was going to win. And it was written from a place where they expected very quickly that they were going to pack the courts, like they were going to replace um, Scalia, because Scalia was, had passed at this point. So there was a vacancy, and they thought, we're going we're gonna to ram Garland in there, then we're going to get some more liberal lawyers. And, you know, let's see, well, a quote from there. Uh, right now, more than half of the judges sitting on the Court of Appeals are appointed by Democratic presidents, and though I wasn't able to locate up-to-date numbers, the same appears to be true of the district courts. And, the, and, the, and these judges no longer have to be worried about reversals by the Supreme Court if they take aggressively liberal positions. So there was this assumption this guy made a bunch of different arguments. And he, it was, he said, we're going to go and take over. And they, he came up with a list of things like we're going to all these ma major big cases that, um, you know, the cases like the big formative cases, the right one. Those are wrong the day where they were decided. We're going to wipe those out, overrule them. And another big thing, he actually explicitly says this, is the culture wars are over. They lost. We won. Um, <laughs> they basically said, like, they were, his whole plan was, you know, um, they were going to go in and go scor scorched earth on the right. Um, they had the opportunity to reach a ceasefire, but rejected them in favor of a scorched earth policy. Um, you know, and, and it goes on like this, and he's basically saying, you know, we're going to take these cases that the right has won. We're going to take those, throw them out, and start all over with what we want. Um, for liberals, the question now is how to deal with the losers in the culture wars. That's mostly a question of tactics. My own judgment is taking a hard line. You lost, live with it. It's better than trying to accommodate the losers who, remember, defended and are defending positions that liberals regard as having no normative pull at all. So this is sort of, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting here because of the way he's talking not knowing what was about to come in a few months down the road or six months or six years from now. But the, it basically blew up in his face. Um, I should note that LGBT activists in particular seem to have settled on a hardline approach while some liberal academics defend more accommodating approaches. But this is a great piece. I'll actually link this. Um, it's Mark, from Mark Tushnet, um, Abandoning Liberal Crouch, a Defensive Liberal... Crouch, um, I'm sorry, defensive crouch liberal constitutionalism. I'll actually add this in the comments, but this piece is very interesting because he wasn't interested in trying to find any sort of middle ground with the right. They assumed they were about to have power and they were going to go in um, and take over. And it's very, it's also another thing, it's funny because one of the big things we hear on the right is, you know, fuck John Roberts. We don't need John Roberts. We have, we have. Coney Barrett now and so fuck John Roberts we've got five good Republicans on here let's hammer this shit and one of the things he actually said in here was literally like fuck Anthony Kennedy like he literally put that in here where he wrote fuck Anthony Kennedy because Kennedy was kind of the swingy libertarian guy and they figured that we're going to pack the court and we don't have to give a shit about what he thinks anymore he, he's irrelevant um it's pretty hilarious to read this thing because he just basically the plan is we're going to have the presidency, we're going to pack the court with liberals, and we're going to run roughshod over conservatives. And my favorite part is the last, go down to the last line. This is the, yeah. Of course, all bets are off if Donald Trump becomes president. <laughs> but if he does, constitutional doctrine is going to be the least of our worries. It's 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 pretty funny. I'll have to have this thing to read this thing from from May of 2016, six years ago, where this guy is basically enjoying, you know, in an early enjoyment of we what he assumes to be an inevitable victory that ended up not happening. 
but yeah, it's, they were basically going to go hard as a motherfucker on the right. He had like it was very interesting because the way he's talking well, about let it. Well, let me let me quote the part that's important again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yugoslavia, uh, te, you know, Tech Pro Tito was a reference to Josip Broz Tito of Yugoslavia, which if you remember the '90s Yugoslav wars, very bloody bad time. Tito managed to hold this together, but people didn't understand the careful balance it took to hold together such disparate peoples. So, again, to quote from Peace, Trying to be nice to losers didn't work well after the Civil War, nor after Brown, and after taking a hard line seemed to work reasonably well in Germany and Japan after 1945. He's explicitly comparing the the conservatives, who he sees he will be ruling over, to, uh, to confederates, who need to be reconstructed, and to have uh, and to have literally uh, laws passed without their consent, and to have literally uh, you know uh, lower uh, standards of evidence, uh, you know, and needing to have their uh, voting schemes approved by federal government. Uh, you know, he's comparing them to Confederates like that. He's comparing them to conquered Nazis of Germany and to conquered J- Japanese of 1945. He's comparing you. He's comparing you if you're a listener who's at least slightly on side of Aaron, he's comparing you to conquered peoples that you know, that created that created uh, you know uh, de- that created death camps in cases, and that you need to, to be ruled and have your constitution written by other people and you have no sovereignty. I mean, he's comparing you to defeated people, and this is one of the problems I've most had with 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 uh, conservatives. They you know they they listen to the left and they say the left is mistaken, the left is incompetent, the left is crazy, as opposed to saying. Huh, they actually want to rule me as if I'm defeated Nazis. I mean, they, 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 the level of evil, the level of willingness to destroy and govern you as a mule is not understood. The thing is, they wish to absolutely not to run roughshod over you, but to, to rule you as a defeated evil people from war. They look at you as that. And so quite frankly, yeah, at this point, you know, uh, fuck John Roberts. You know, we can count to five. We can count to five of originalist justices, and this is the important thing that's really funny. I've been listening to and reading a lot of leftist analysis of the outcome, and what was funny is uh, everyone, and myself included, when people wanted to talk to me on this because I'm known as someone that, that knows a little bit about these issues, even myself, I could not help but talk about Dobbs that entire weekend. When really, Bruin's far more important to me. It truly was a, um, a, a psychic... Uh, moral, weird, weird thing. You know, it's very difficult to talk about in, in secular terms because of this. But when I read Bruin, I said, this is the one that matters because the originalism here is not Scalia originalism that has balancing things. It has, you know, Heller was beautifully written. I mean, credit to Scalia, beautiful writer, very complex, very wonderful kind of writing. But unfortunately, I saw I saw problems with Heller at the time it was written and, you know, and it predicted major problems with it. And so so did Thomas, honestly, when he talked about uh, reviving privileges and immunities. Um, the thing is, uh, the thing is, when I read Bruin's reasoning, it's as brutal as Hammer. It's not this, this elegant sword play. It's not elegant sword play lightsabers things that we like to look at. It's it's like beating with sledgehammer. It's not elegant. It's not beautiful. It's not um, incisive. It doesn't have uh, beautiful quotations from Shakespeare or other things Scully is known for. What it has is it has framework, it has, you're wrong, this is wrong, this is how we will judge. It's, it's absolutely as, as easy to understand as Hammer. It's wonderful. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, too, that stands out from this, from a lot of the reactions from the court, especially, is, you know, you're hearing the left explicitly say, and, like, it's interesting because it builds on what you see here is, like, they are openly saying the court's no longer legitimate, and it's it, this is something we saw with Trump, too. They said Trump's not legitimate. But specifically, they said that the court, Supreme Court and courts were the most legitimate branches because they're allowing things to pair back. You found all of a sudden people quoting Hamilton uh, that, you know, from Federalist Papers that, uh, that, 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 that specifically Hamilton says the Supreme Court is the most uh, is the least dangerous branch, uh, which with the anti-federalists, which frankly I have, a, I have sympathy for. Uh, Anti-federalists said that the Supreme Court is unelected masters and they're, they're incredibly dangerous. Hamilton's argument was Supreme Court is the least dangerous branch because they have no power. If people re- refuse to enforce things, refuse to follow their fo- follow them, they have nothing they can do. So they completely rely upon moral uh, moral uh, weighing of public and sort of acquiescence to their rulings. Uh, famously, of course, you know, Andrew Jackson, when uh, ruled against, I believe it was on um, 
Was it on Bank of New York or was it on Indians? I think it might have been on on, on Indians. I think it's on the Indians. I think on it's the Cherokees. Indian. He said, yeah, the Cher- they were going to protect Cherokee rights if, or something, if, or something, if I recall correctly. It could have been other Indians. I believe it was Cherokee. And, uh, you know, and su- supposedly he famously said, you know, the Supreme Court has made their decision. Now let them enforce it. Which they would not. And but the point is, liberals were saying that the courts were the most heckin' legitimate branch, uh, you know, of of the government. And now they are absolutely saying it's illegitimate. I had Ezra, Ezra Klein, I, I believe, was quoted as saying, you know, stare decisis is the bedrock of uh, of which is essentially settled settled court settled decisions are what we have to go off of is the most important thing. He said stare decisis is what keeps us from seeing them as nine robed uh, warlocks casting legal spells. You, you know, which, which, if, if, again, which is a problem with conservatives, you know, playing the if the sides were switched. But if the sides were switched when he, you know, just a few years ago, uh, it would have been called absolutely dangerous to the democracy, to to our to our democracy for people on the right to say that. But now they're saying it because they're on the losing side because truly there is no principle for them but power and getting their way. Yeah, it's, I think AOC said something like that today. It was interesting because she basically said the court was. Not legitimate specifically because it would not, um, it would not enforce her policy preferences, and it, it's very intriguing because you know the, the the left does not see any sort of intrinsic legitimacy in any of these institutions. It was very much a mask off moment. They're like, if this doesn't you know provide the outcomes that we want, it's not legitimate. It's one of those things of they talk a lot of game about process and everything like that, but. They really don't care. I mean, this is kind of a human thing, but but especially, well, I, I can't really say it's a human thing because it seems to be like the neocons who are in like the old-time establishment conservative people who are very focused on process, even if the process turns out badly for them. The left doesn't think that way. You see them openly talking like, or at least like the more militant left, which is a, a growing part of the left at large, of like, hey, it's the, it doesn't give me what I want. It's illegitimate. It's, it's kind of a thing where, you know, Trump, was they never treated Trump as legitimate. I mean, Trump was an illegitimate president in their eyes, and they treated him that way from the moment the election was called in his favor. And you see this sort of thing, like now it's like, you know, and you actually see this even like with play times like things like Hungary. You know, like I've never seen anyone that says that, you know, Hungary is, their elections are rigged. I mean, you can probably argue about some of the procedural things there, but but the the, the left is no business arguing about manipulating procedural outcomes um, to get elections with the turnout they want. With all the stuff we saw in twenty twenty, with you know getting the lawsuits and and all the weird agreements they had, like the Zuckerberg Foundation and all these other things going on, um, and not even getting some of the wacky conspiracy stuff. Just just some of the uh, just the stuff that they bragged about in Time Magazine. You know, just the stuff that was admitted to and bragged about in Time Magazine is pretty wild. But, yeah, you see this thing where it's like, um, and you see this so much with the left, and it's one of those things where legitimacy is a shorthand for something that produces the outcomes we desire. It means nothing more than that. And, you know, like the word democracy, like they obviously the word, they use, when they use democracy, our, democracy. Like, our democracy, when they say that, they mean it's not yours. That's what they're saying. This is our democracy. It ain't yours. You know, it's the outcome that we want, and that makes it democracy. And, you know, I, I talk more and more, and I want to expand on this at a later date, but the concept of, you know, liberal autocracy. It's like one of these things where, they, and you see this with the court, you know, they have this thing that what they view to be a liberal outcome, and, well, the people won't vote for it, so we'll just force it on them if it has to be with the courts. I Which mean, is, again, it's important to, and this is much larger issue, but just to leave with, the, the idea of democracy is people voting upon things. So the people of California famously voted for Proposition 8. 52% voted and passed Proposition 8. Sounds like a victory of democracy. The issue was demo- uh, Proposition 8 uh, banned same-sex marriage. This was then overruled. And yet this is also called their democracy. So the, the, the point is, it's an outcomes-based uh, it's an outcome-based system, and they'll they'll ignore uh, hypocrisy. They'll ignore these things because they truly do have selective memories. People don't have mem. I I can't tell you 
I how many lefty people I know of very very uh, accomplished backgrounds and very intelligent and very good memories on things, but their selective memory. For instance, I was just talking to someone who is who is uh, denigrating the court and denigrating uh, Thomas. He literally quote literally quote, and this was from uh, from one of uh, from uh, probably top. 20 university nation, uh, put it easily. And he is, you know, and he said, you know, well, well, Thomas is clearly stupidest person on court, and he's always been, you know, and he's stupidest person on court, and this decision by him is illegitimate. And I said, wait, wait a second here. Name me, can you even name who's on court? Are you going to defend, uh, are you going to defend Sotomayor as uh, smarter than Thomas? Because I will go quote for quote with you if Y is Latina. <laughs> he paused for a second, no, paused for about five seconds. To process information, and he said, "Yeah, I guess you're right." <laughs> he, but, the, but the point is not that I was correct, not that you know I'm right, he's wrong. The point was he hadn't even considered it. He said that Thomas was Thomas was stupidest member of court, not from considered decision, not from even processing new information. And again, I hadn't even thought of Kentanji Brown Jackson, who technically wasn't seated at the time we had conversation, so it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair, anyways. But 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 the point was he hadn't even considered it. And just merely bringing up the, this this new this new person and saying, okay, defend it on its merits, and he's an honest he was honest, which is why we could have conversation. He was like, he's willing to admit right at the moment. Oh, I guess you're right. And this is the, this is point. The the point is though, uh, you know, the second he'll admit he's right, and then uh, you know, then he'll immediately though forget what it was, and then they're real about how stupid Thomas is, and continue with that because that's what was programmed in hearings of Thomas, the high tech lynching as Thomas referred to, um, you know, back at the hearing. You know, again, f funny thing, I have literal book on it, The Real Nita Hill by David Brock. David Brock was a right-winger who turned to left, actually, and he's, uh, I forget if he, uh, I, David Brock actually might very well be involved with, um, oh, the, uh, the, uh, the Hillary staffer of Comet Ping Pong, I forget, he's like that big. Um, he's that he's very very central to sort of the Hillary establishment of of, uh, of Democratic Party, but he started off seeing those kinds of things, and frankly, probably what he saw is he saw one side was Machiavellian, willing to do what it took to win, and the other side wasn't. I mean, the thing is, when you want to type an illegitimacy of court, look at the canceling of Robert Bork, you know, and then look at the attempted canceling of uh, of Justice Thomas. So the, when when they tried to say that that Kavanaugh was a gang rapist and that he was uh, and that he was uh, getting women drunk and groping them but unable to to do anything, uh, you know, successful at seventeen and this should impact legal career even he though he was a nerd who kept a detailed calendar and this wasn't here, this was a long tradition that frankly right that left has had of character assassination of court. And the right hasn't reciprocated on. So, you know, when they want to talk about legitimacy, you know, talk about the legitimacy of pro of process, where uh, where right will back down on nominated uh, nominated uh, judges, but left has never had to do so. I mean, and again, this is this is the the, the lack. This is the amnesia of the right on this. But the point is, amnesia doesn't matter. What matters is a moral argument. And truly, uh, what's what's amazing is essentially the reverse polarity. It's like it's like literally the the South Pole North Pole switched overnight. And so, what was strong federal policy of Roe v. Wade is now no is now returned to states. And what was weak sort of state level policy, even though Heller explicitly and and then McDonald explicitly incorporated versus states now. That is strong federal policy. I, I I can't I can't tell you how delightful it is. And just just last point, I sort of forgot to get to earlier. Hopefully, we edit it. Is what's interesting about the ruling is um, is just not just how clear it is, but when I read Bruin ruling, I saw that this is really the, the, the mark of a new court. This is truly, uh, essentially, the, the statement of values and statement of what's to come. Dobbs is, in caref is careful reasoning. First 10 pages is very readable. The rest of it's not. Thomas's entire opinion, aside from citing, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham is in there, literally. Uh, aside from citing things going back to 1200s, you know, and you can skip over those parts. It's all so reasonably easy to read. You almost, you almost feel embarrassed that it's not hard to read. But it's not meant to to be pretty. It's not meant to be prose. It's not meant to be read as Shakespeare or Proust or or Dostoevsky. It's meant to be ruling that people live by, and it is wonderful. And when I, as soon as I read this, I knew that this was going to be guiding doctrine of court. If you want to know what what's going to happen in the next few years, read. Read Bruin. Read decision by Thomas. Yeah, I think you know it's there. It's definitely a very, um, very insightful read. Yeah, it's 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 something. I, and I think the two big takeaways I would I would have from our conversation so far, um, the big thing is you know the left 
you know, legitimacy is when it produces the outcome that they wish. There is no amount of procedure following that you can, you know, hold to if you're on the right that will make them accept it as legitimate. If it does not produce the outcome that they wish, then it's not, then it's, you know, on its face illegitimate. Like, it doesn't matter. There's no good faith argument you can make. Um, the second thing there, too, is just that incremental victories and, and laying the groundwork for a future victory and, and not overreaching and, and leaving your supply lines um, vulnerable like we saw the left do so much legally. Cause, and we see this, too, going back to, to the legitimacy angle. I mean, you see this where, like you said, with, like, the Prop 8 thing, it's like, well, you know, they... they lost in the ballot box they went judicially we'll, we'll overrule our losses through the judicial system and now they're losing control of the judicial system and what are they saying oh we're going to go with the ballot box and now we want to see about getting getting the legislature to overrule the courts and you know pack the courts it, it doesn't really matter you know for them it's not it's not the it's not the process it's if it gives them what they want that's it for this episode. We hope you found it useful and insightful. Granted, we are not attorneys, so we didn't dive down into the legal minutia so much as we tried to examine what it tells us about the larger cultural moment in which we are ensconced and some of the tactical and strategic aspects of this. I uh, hope you found it useful and insightful. And, you know, again, thank you so much for joining me, Tech Bro. I always appreciate your insights. Nice to love you.